right. Hello to all the cinephiles out there. Uh, this is the Marquee Spotlight coming to you from the always sunny Portland, Oregon. I am Spencer Bailey and joined by my co-host, Chelsea Burnett. Hi, Chelsea. Hello. This is episode two. Uh, we're super pumped. We thought the first episode went well and uh, talked about why we love movies. And coincidentally, we both had a lot of love for David Fincher. And that is today's spotlight issue, issue topic, spotlight topic. Um, it's an issue how much we like him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, we're going to talk about the works of Fincher. Um, I thought he was a good first person to pick. I mean, I I don't know if he, I would probably say Tarantino is my favorite director, but I think Fincher's a good first person to touch on. He has such a great library. We both love him. And he has a movie that's up for some Oscars right now. It's it's topical. So yes. excited to get into that. Um, so uh, per usual, usual this being our second episode, we're going to start with a little bit of news. Um, one real topic I wanted to touch on today um, looks like Netflix paid a whopping $450 million to get the rights to the next two sequels to Knives Out. I am pumped. I mm -hmm. love Knives Out. It was one of the last theater experiences I had before COVID. Uh, it was so much fun. I love mysteries like that where you don't know until the very end. The cast of loaded cast of characters. Daniel Craig was amazing. And I was hoping they would do many movies with this character with different mysteries every time. And the fact that Netflix is going to be uh, maybe doing the theater and then quick to streaming. I just, I can't wait. I agree. I think Ryan Johnson is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Ryan Johnson is tied to this uh, deal, correct? He will be recording. Yes. Um. Yeah. Ryan Johnson, I, I think has, Um. I, I, I think it was so cool that he was able to come out with uh, Knives Out and it was its own unique, fresh story. It wasn't based on um, already established IP, and it still got audiences excited. And um, I, I hope that with these new films, he'll be working with just as diverse and big of a cast as he did with the original Knives Out, because I think that um, makes for a really uh, fun and entertaining story. And Daniel Craig is awesome as that character. He's so good. And you know, it's funny as we talk about sometimes um, uh, people doing accents. I think the one that everybody goes to that nobody does a good one is Boston, unless you're from Boston. <laughs> well, I grew up in the South. And let me tell you, everybody doesn't do a good Southern accent. And uh, for some reason, I feel like English actors really nail it. I was going to ask if you feel that way. Yeah. I thought he did great to not only cover up a single section, but do that spot on like Carolina, Tennessee, Southern accent, Kentucky, Southern accent. He did. He nailed it. And uh, I'm getting a little off topic, but I felt the perfect example is a baby driver. Mm. Um, the main kid, which is Ed, Ensel. Ensel yeah. Mm -hmm. he, his accent was awful. <laughs> it was so bad. But I was shocked to find out that Lily James is English because she nailed that, that accent. But uh, I got to so enjoy Daniel Craig and uh, I wonder if um, the detective or the uh, the other officer. Oh, like uh, Keith Stanfield. Yeah. Oh, if he comes back, if he's like the recurring, oh, this mm -hmm. guy again character, that'd be great. Although I wonder if I remember Daniel Craig's character got called in 
So yeah. he may just be in a different state every time. I don't it's like know. The next film is in, in Greece. They're filming it in Greece, I think. Or the, that's where they're – I thought I had read that in the article. But um, so, yeah, who knows what will – what will be going on in Greece? <laughs> yeah. And then this world we're in of balancing the streaming and cinema. And I don't want to dive into that because I'm, I'm thinking we're going to do an episode on that soon. But um, it was very pleasant to have access to everything. So I, oh, this is great. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited. What a great, what a great grab by, by Netflix. And they clearly want me to think they've got money to burn at this point. So half a bill for uh, to get the rights to these, I think, is a, probably a steal, mm-hmm. I think, for two movies. Oh yeah, considering the other projects that Netflix puts their money behind, I I think this is in the bag. I I, I think audiences, subscribers will be very very happy about this. Yeah, um, and their quest to have a lot of content—they put out a lot of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> I know they try and they throw like everything at the wall to see what sticks, and even the garbage. There are big fans for it. There are the people that that love it and are grateful. To, to, to have that out there and not even if the majority is really could do without it. So if Netflix has the money and can keep making all types of content, go for it, I guess. That, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, I think this is definitely a win for them. I think a lot of their wins lately have been in um, uh, around series or miniseries like Queen's Gambit. So mm. I'm ready for them to get some more wins with, with movies. With film, yeah. So uh, yeah, super excited. We need more original fun movies like that no more licensed yes. you know sequels and licensed and superheroes like it's so great to have somebody who's like here's something new mm-hmm. so, did you did you like looper i loved looper yeah. i really did i think i liked knives out more me too uh, but i really liked looper i remember mm-hmm. really really enjoying it when it came out me too yeah um, and what was he had another another um, big movie uh before i think it was before looper Oh, well, I knew the movie that kind of got him on the map was, I think it was called Brick uh, yes. with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Brick. I've yeah. never seen Brick. I've always wanted to see Brick. It's oh, always been on my list. I think list. you'd enjoy it. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I watched it a few years ago and um, I it's uh, it's definitely like a first time, like very indie, um, but uh, I thought it was, um, you could tell it had the makings, like this is a filmmaker that has something to say. They have a vision and it was really cool. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, super exciting. Um, can't wait. Can't wait for it to come out. All right. So let's uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll dive into the spotlight, which is the works of David Fincher. All right, and welcome back. So here we go. The spotlight for this episode: uh, the works of David Fincher. Um, now we we both love Fincher. Like he's so great and everything he gets his hands on is just what has he done? That's bad. Um, truly bad. I mean, we'll get into some, <laughs> some stuff, but um, you know, I'd love to hear why you, you love Fincher, but I love, I've always been interested in anybody who's like, let's explore the dark side of things. Mm-hmm. Everything isn't sunshine and rainbows, but let's, let's get into that. And he has such a style, you know, yeah. the light, the lighting, lack of color. All of his movies have this like, distinct lack of color Mm -hmm. and i think under a lesser talent it would come across as uh too drab Mm -hmm. but he just makes it so cool he makes it so cool and the way he uses lighting he's always got low lighting but there's lighting right where you need it and um you know so many other stylistic choices he's 
like totally changed the game with opening credits. Like 80s and 90s opening credits were so boring. I, I remember like not too long ago I was watching uh I think the Pelican Brief and you're just like sitting here at these credits while these pelicans are flying around like this is we're in this age now where most movies don't even have opening credits and you're just like this is so boring and like Fincher was the first one to like his he has such cool opening credits in movies. And that's just a stylistic choice he does. He does. But, uh, I think about that in Panic Room. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, but no yeah, uh, the the opening credits uh, to Panic Room where he built uh, the text into uh, the cityscape and how it like kind of popped out of the architecture of the buildings in New York. I just remember feeling like I'm already in. Like this is just setting the scene and i think it's so smart and it shows how detail oriented he is that he wants like from the get-go even the smallest thing like opening credits which really only the bond movies i think through the years have put that much care into those um i think it's great i think it's awesome to start talking about him kind of by discussing the the opening credits because that's where all movies start so yeah that's a great example with the with the bond because you're right mm -hmm. james bond pretty consistently had cool opening graphics that fit the theme of each each individual story but that just goes to it's like so i think we all know venture is famously very persnickety <laughs> you know he's very particular to the point where he drives people insane and um you know i don't I know if you listen to mark maron's podcast but almost every time he talks to like an actor who famously worked on a Fincher film. Uh, I've heard him tell the story to all of like Jake Gyllenhaal and Jodie Foster. He's like, I have a Fincher interview. It's in the can. It's ready to go. And it's an amazing interview. And the second we finished, he said, you know, I think I could have done better. I'll come back. And he's never come back. Like it was years ago. He's like, I think I'll come back and do a better interview. And like Marin's like, I could release it, but I'm trying to be respectful. But and they always laugh. The actor's like, yeah, that's David. That's David. You know, like I famously works the actor's death. They do 90 takes and every little. But people want to work with him. People want to yeah. work with him. Mm -hmm. And they all speak of him highly. Mm -hmm. But all the little details, everything's important to him. And that's just, you know, you hear about directors who they want, you know, Spielberg famously. Just give me a, give me a good take and let's move on. And Fincher's just like, let's get it perfect. Which good or bad you know it is what it is i guess as an audience member and maybe i'm putting too much uh stock into this but i when like i watched the game last night for the first time and as i was sitting there watching it i was like i just freaking love dave fincher for this like it's such a treat that he gives like his audience like I know that he may have made Michael Douglas like there was a scene that reminded me of what I've heard he did to Jake Gyllenhaal in Zodiac where so in the game there's a scene where Michael Douglas pulls a I think he's pulling a gun out of his um, uh, oh my gosh glove compartment and putting it into a briefcase something like that and it was such a fluid movement 
And it was so minor, but I it reminded me of what he did in Zodiac with Jake Gyllenhaal, where he <laughs> made him shoot this scene moving a newspaper across a seat in a car, like I, I feel like a hundred times. And um, I just thought, you know, it seems like madness and it's annoying, I'm sure at the time, but like, I think there is a reason why he put so much care and thought into this because you feel like you're being treated treated to something when you watch his movies, so... Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, so for us, I think the painstaking detail mm-hmm. is rewarding. Yeah. Maybe not so much for everyone that works with him, but people keep working with him. You know, I mean, he's he's reused several actors. Um, I have heard, you know, yeah, especially on Zodiac, he worked. I think he drove Jake Gyllenhaal nuts, but Jake Gyllenhaal recently did an interview Mark Maron and spoke very highly. Jodie Foster recently did Mark she's, she's like, I love David. Mm-hmm. She goes, I, he's great, you know. Um, so of course, David's career started. I mean, he had some, like, he was like secondhand mic operators. I don't, I don't know if that's right, but I know he, you know, he had smaller jobs and movie sets before he got into music videos and commercials. And, you know, in the eighties, like MTV music videos, that was the thing. And that aesthetic moved into TV shows and moved into everything. So music videos are a huge deal. And he was working with, I mean, he worked with Madonna and, you know, people who are younger don't understand, like, Madonna in the 80s and early 90s was bigger than God. I mean... The culture. Yeah, she was everything. <laughs> take Lady Gaga and Taylor Swift, it pales in comparison. He worked Madonna's videos. Uh, Paul Abdul, who was, you know, very big in the 80s, not so much later on. But his commercials were like events. You know, he had these Nike commercials and, like, all these major... Major uh, and they're like little mini movies. Like you could tell the talent was there, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't unco- it's not uncommon for somebody to come from music videos and stuff. But you know, Spike Jones did that. Um, but to jump straight from that stuff into huge movies, like not our you know small independent art tour movies, but major major deal movies, I think is a testament to his abilities. I was going to ask you if you think his. Um, uh, his experience, his background working in um, commercials and in music videos specifically, how that has impacted his style for motion pictures. And like, uh, do you think it's like made him look uh, at a scene in a different way? Because music videos can go, there's so much freedom in telling a story with a song. And I'm just kind of curious what you think about how, um, coming from directing music videos to then directing film, uh, what what extra edge that gives him and makes him a little more special? God, that's a great question. Um, you know, I I, I, I kind of had, like a long time ago, I kind of had this thought that he kind of just did that stuff to get to movies, but he still does music videos now. And he still has commercials now. Um, I think he likes it, but I don't think that that gave him the edge. I think the edge was there and he put that edge into those other avenues. And that's what people saw. This guy has it, right? Mm. So I don't know if he, I think it's a great question. I just don't know if he picked anything up from that. Yeah. Or if it was always inside of him. I think think you're right. He seems like a guy who's kind of always known what he wanted. And um, another fun little thing I found out about him today is that he went to Ashland High School and he worked as a projectionist at a movie theater in Ashland. Really? Yes. I think he was born in um his he moved as a teenager to Ashland, but um I was yeah, and for the listeners out there, I mean, 
Yeah, Ashland's only like four five, hours four away, from, hours us. away yeah. from us. So that's really cool. Yeah. Small town, small town that's been so overrun by retirees they close the elementary school. <laughs> it's just a retiree town. People move from retire in California, move to Ashland in Southern Oregon. But uh, that's cool. I didn't know that. But no, I, I knew even in early age. Um, he was he was really into that stuff because I mean I think his father was in the business because we'll get to it with Mank you know mm, mm-hmm. but um yeah he's he's such a fascinating such a fascinating figure um and I mean if you go back and watch you can find his commercials and stuff on YouTube and he's got some really epic ones he's got a couple of Nike ones that you're just like I I, I mean it's just a commercial and you just want more. You're like, there's a story with this commercial. I want to know what it is. You know, it's just. I watched the American Cancer Society fetus smoking the cigarette yes. this morning, and um, ooh, gave me it made me feel really uncomfortable, but it, it got his point across. It, it was very. Uh, he was the right person for the job to get a lot of pregnant women to stop smoking. And as we've come to find out, there's one thing that David Fincher excels at. It's at making you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. in the best ways. So awesome. Well, let's. Go into this. Like, so we're just going to talk about his filmography. Okay. Like, you know, I would love to talk about his music videos and his and his uh, commercials, but uh, let's just talk about his movies today. So first major film, and I know that you made a valiant effort to, to, to find it. HBO Max. I'm not sure what's up with your search function. <laughs> I yeah. sh- should have let you borrow my copy. But uh, so, yeah, Fincher Famously's first movie was Alien 3. Now, this is, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on Alien 3. I mean, you know, the first movie was, is a masterpiece, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an absolute masterpiece. My husband and, would agree. Yeah. And then a, several years later, James Cameron makes Aliens, which is something better than Alien. I won't argue with, I, like, I, I have to put Alien ahead. I won't argue with people who like Aliens better because it's it's also a masterpiece and then all this time goes by and studios didn't really know what they wanted to do with alien and they had those ideas ridley scott was about to come back to do the third one he was actually excited to and his schedule just didn't allow it um so after some things fell through thought of different rewrites and stuff they gave fincher a chance to make alien three uh fincher famously now these are the you know he was particular even back then. And everybody was like, who is this, this guy coming in here and being this particular, you know, he's completely disowned the movie. I, I think it, it makes him an easy, I think it gets more hate than it deserves. And there is a, a longer cut. Um, it is a, it is an odd movie. And there was like all these ideas they were going to have. They wanted two more movies. So Michael Bean's character from aliens was going to be the lead. And Sigourney Weaver was going to make a cameo. And then she was going to be the, the, another major character in the fourth one. They had all these ideas. Uh, so if you've never seen the movie, uh, she's in the escape shuttle with Newt and and Sergeant Hicks, um, and they crash. She crash lands on a planet that is now a prison, and she's the only survivor. Newton, Major Hicks, Sergeant Hicks. I can't remember what rank Michael Bean was. Uh, die in the crash. Now she's stuck on this this prison, and Facehugger was was with her. And I think in one version there's it gets into a dog, but in the in the longer cut, I think it's a it's a cow, I believe it is. So the alien comes out and it's kind of animalistic on all fours and stuff. But now you have these the Scorny Weaver on a prison full of men, um, 
and uh, with the alien running around. It is very odd, especially compared to the first two. One thing I like is they really explore the Wyland Company more, like Wyland Company's trying to get there so they can get the alien. And then I would say spoiler alert, but the movie's quite old now. Everyone kind of knows how it ends <laughs> is she has the alien inside of her. And I came here. There's two cuts. One where she sacrifices, she sacrifices herself into the molten steel in both of them. But one, she just goes in and that's the end of it. And I think that's the better cut. And then they think in the theatrical cut as she's falling, the alien bursts from her chest and she grabs it and takes it down with her, which is a little more, a little more, uh, you know, obnoxious, but ham fisted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I do think the movie gets a bad rap. It's nowhere near as good as the first two. Uh, it's certainly better than Alien Resurrection, which is a bad movie. Mm -hmm. And I think um, Alien 3 has a lower Rotten Tomato score, which is ridiculous than, than Alien Re um, Resurrection. But uh, I'm curious to see if, if they gave Fincher the leeway to do all the things he wanted to do, what would that movie have looked like? I know he had a lot of ideas and he just kept butting heads with the production company and I'm really curious to see what if they gave him carte blanche what that movie would have looked like yeah um I so you don't feel that his film cheapens the franchise or would root like it's not like it was a slap in the face to what uh Ridley Scott and James Cameron had already done at all it would just just missed the mark well said. I don't think it's a slap in the face of those guys. I think he just missed the mark a little bit. And and again, I don't think that's Fincher's fault. Mm -hmm. He was just bound. He was, he was handcuffed. Yeah. Um, I think he did the best he could. I think it was just an odd installment to this to the to the to the franchise. Mm -hmm. Um, again, it's not a bad movie. It's not a great movie. It's kind of like it's kind of like Godfather Three. I think Godfather Three is very flawed and gets a worse rap than deserves. It's it's a very flawed movie, but it followed up arguably the two greatest movies of all time. I mean, you know. So the deck was stacked against it. Exactly. So uh, Alien 3, 45% of Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it did have one Oscar nomination for Best Effects. Mm. Didn't win. Um, so I, I definitely recommend, if you like the first two, to, to, to at least watch it. And maybe even give it a couple watches, because I think the first time is going to turn you off. Um some really good acting in it. Uh, I, the actor's name slips my mind. But he played Tyron Lannister on Game of Thrones. Ooh. Um, and then he was in Mank, right? He was in Mank. Yeah. 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 First time they've worked together, I think, since Alien Charles 3. Charles Dance. That's his yes. name. Yes. Yeah. yeah so I knew, He's I knew in Alien know, 3? I knew you would know the name. Yeah. He's much younger. Yes. Um, yeah. He's wonderful. I liked him in Mank, too. Yeah. I loved him in Game of Thrones, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a good movie. I mean, well, I mean, excuse me. It's a better movie than people give it credit for. Mm -hmm. But check it out if you like the first two. So so Alien 3 wraps up. He's very discouraged. He doesn't know if he's ever going to... He's like, I might be done making movies. Do I even want to make movies anymore? And then a little script comes across his desk called Seven. Now, if you've listened to the last episode, you know this is my second favorite movie of all time. Um... What a way to bounce back. Oh, my God. Like, and what a way to put his stamp on his style. Yeah. 
everything I think is kind of measured against that. Would you agree? I don't know. I kind of feel that people look at seven and it's either seven or fight club for me where people like base a lot of their other opinions on his films off of off of those two or where he got his style from signature style. I totally agree. Mm -hmm. Um, So earlier we were talking about opening credits. Incredible opening credits. Like, and I think there was the original idea was the opening credits were going to be Morgan Freeman's character looking at houses like on the outskirts of town because he was getting ready to retire. They didn't have enough time to film it and they were running out of money. And that's when he had the idea of having the opening credits from John Doe's point of view. And they made the, the credit text look like his handwriting and these eerie images dark eerie images inside the house and it lets you know what movie you're about to watch with that great uh, remix of Closer by Nine Inch Nails, which was the first time the Trent Reznor, David Fincher connection comes into play, which we'll get into more later because they don't keep it going until <laughs> later on. But, uh, um, oh my gosh, seven. I, um, I, I just, I'll never forget watching this movie the first time so many right decisions. You, like I said, you start to see the style, the color palettes, the lighting. It's like, there it is. There's what Fincher's going, movies are going to look like going forward. Uh, 83% Rotten Tomatoes. And it was nominated for Best Editing at the Oscars. But when did you first, I mean, do you remember first seeing it seven the first time? Yeah, I saw seven when I was definitely uh, a teenager. Um, and I was really taken with the seven deadly sins aspect of it. I thought that was such a, uh, such a, such an interesting and like cool, also kind of like procedural way to go through, uh, in the, the crime and, and tracking the serial killer. I think a lot of things went over my head as a teenager in terms of the relationship between Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow and Morgan Freeman. Um, I've heard podcasts talk about that movie and they go a little more in depth into um what like what you can glean from like the friendship that i think i think gwyneth paltrow morgan freeman are building at, at some point and um i i also think maybe i didn't take brad pitt seriously enough as what a good such a good actor as i think he really is i, I think i just thought oh he's just hot like i just want to watch him because he's hot but but you did that because his performance is so understated it's perfect exactly <laughs> what the movie needed and, you know, he he had done a few things coming into Seven. But this also, by the way, started – they are very close friends, Brad Pitt and Fincher. And that's why they've worked together several times. But, yeah, the performance by Brad Pitt. And I love – the dynamic of him and Morgan Freeman is, is the best part of that movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love when – you know, Morgan Freeman is so smart. His character is so smart. And Brad Pitt seems naive and bullheaded and – not stupid, but maybe he just doesn't think these through. And then they have that scene in the bar towards the end of the movie where Morgan Freeman's like, how can you still just care about this? And Brad Pitt's kind of telling me like, because you got to, you know? And that's why I love, so for those, the, the ending of the movie, um, there were different versions. And in fact, you can see the, the storyboard of the what the studio wanted where Morgan Freeman and the DVD extras. And that was going to be Morgan Freeman um, can't talk Brad Pitt out of dropping his gun, so he pulls his gun out. And Brad Pitt's like, what are you doing? And Morgan Freeman's like, retiring. And he shoots John Doe, which is terrible. And thankfully, Fincher and Brad Pitt fought for the ending we got. Um, they were like, it's the only thing that makes sense, and we will leave if you change this ending. Now, the one thing Fincher was on the fence about, and he's still not crazy about, 
is the last line of the movie. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. The Hemingway quote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. I'm so glad it's in. I love it because I think it's Morgan Freeman's movie and you see this man who's cynical. He's, you know, been beaten down by the horrible things in the world. And it's this young couple that he doesn't even realize it, but is slowly bringing his hope back up. He, the only time he laughs in the movie is, or the first time anyways, is at dinner with them. And then he has this moment with Gwyneth Paltrow when she tells her, he, it tells him she's pregnant. And what I love about that quote is, because I, I kind of get the sense he's not going to retire anymore. Because the captain asks him, where are you going to be? He says, I'll be around. And then he says the quote. And to me, that says, even through all of that, he's still cynical. But he knows you got to keep fighting. It's just amazing. I don't think enough people probably pick up on that um, more like um, hopeful um, ending to it. Or that there is like that light at the end of the, the tunnel. Yeah. Type of. I agree with you. I think everybody thinks the ending is purely tragic tragic or, yeah and it's not there's that little light um but i could just i could go on and on and on about seven i i just everything the, the pacing is perfect i also love that whoever you're talking to depending on the person it, it, it just which sin you which one you think is the most fucked up <laughs> there are seven deadly sins captain gluttony Greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. The the gluttony was the one that sticks with me the most. I was I as a kid, I the the gluttony one I was very upsetting for me. But yeah, that's as a kid, teenager, whatever. Yeah. Well, I just of course was so shocked at lust. I paused it on the Polaroid. I was like, what the fuck? Like you could do this in a movie. Uh, but you're right. As I've gotten older, I'm like, gluttony's really fucked up. Like, man, what? Are, so I don't know if you know, but they also released a graphic novel series. Mm, I didn't know that's about that. All from John Joe's point of view, and it goes back to like when he's writing about his diary, being on the train with the person and vomiting on them. Oh. It all leads up to the murders. I've never read it, but it's like an adult comic. It's like supposed to be really, really messed up. But uh, uh, yeah, seven. I mean, I, I we probably need to move on because I could talk about seven for two hours. So. We can dive in. We'll do a seven podcast. It's dedicated to that. Someday. Oh yeah, future future <laughs> episode episode one thousand. Um, okay, so after after seven, we we does the film that you just brought up, the game. The game. So I just rewatched the game this week for this. I haven't seen it in probably ten years or more. Um, and I remember liking when I first saw it, but oh my god, it's so good. And I was so disappointed to find out that Fincher kind of disowns it. Oh. His his wife, who he works with on these films a lot, suggested to him at the time, don't do this movie because of the problems with the third act. And he, I should have listened to her. And that's his 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 you know compulsiveness that we're talking about coming in because the third act is problematic. But it's a movie; just go with it. It it, it yeah. I will say the third act left me feeling a little like underwhelmed after like everything that it had been building towards. Um, 
but um, I wasn't mad at it. It wasn't like I was like, that was a waste of two and a half hours or however, I, two hours, 15 minutes, whatever. I still felt that um, what I uh, what I loved so much about the film was the the performance he got out of Michael Douglas and well, I shouldn't say just he got out of him, but the collaboration they must have had in making that. And I think Michael Douglas had a difficult task having to carry um, that that movie. I mean, everything sort of hinged on him and his his reactions. And it was I thought he played he could have, you know, dipped into um, over dramatic uh, or um yeah, he could have been over dramatic at times, but I think he played it so he played it so smart, and he it was it felt very very real. Like every move he made was believable, and I I always like that when I'm watching a, a like a thriller, I I get kind of frustrated when characters are <coughs> making like one stupid decision after the next, or they're behaving in a way that I don't relate to. I'm like I wouldn't. Re- have played it that way so then I'm kind of like I'm out but I thought the whole time I was like even if this plot is a little preposterous I was still totally with it um and uh I I I I think it um that style he had the lighting um the cinematography that um we all got used to and and started you know um tying to David Fincher I think the game also uh carried that um it also complemented the game's story as well i think the the seediness this um a lot of secrecy confusion um and uh i just think it it was great and there was also the the score used a lot of like this like plinking sound which um was a kind of grating after a while but it was really good in the 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 suspense building moments and then there were also times when i'd be sitting there and i'm like this score <coughs> this score sounds so familiar to me and i wanted to know if um he used the same composer on um did i look it up and see if it was from zodiac or no i'm i can't believe i just looked well, this up last night but i'm yeah. glad you, i was actually gonna bring that up like when i was watching the game this week i was like this score sounds exactly like seven and it's howard shore he mm. did both of them mm. mm-hmm. so you had the same stylistic choices the light even when he's in that even when he's in that company's office mm-hmm all these fluorescent lights are on. There's sunlight coming in through the windows and it's still dark uh-huh. <laughs> because, you know, but this, yeah, the score, I was like, it sounds so similar to seven um, in a good way. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's Howard Shore. He did both of them. The wonderful Howard Shore um, who's gone on to done many, many great movie scores. So I really, I, the game's great. Like I can't think of a movie where so first of all you know movies will trick you and you think so, but you're the whole movie you're thinking something's going to happen and then at the end you find out it's not that but for a movie to make you go oh this is happening oh no this is happening oh no this is happening oh no this wait wait this is happening and until the very last moment you don't really know mm-hmm. like I mean down to the wire last five minutes you don't know what's happening I mean God. So well done. And I still didn't know exactly what they wanted us to think when it ended because that mo- those lines, that, I mean, do you care if I spoil this for any, I guess the it's an like old movie. years old. So what, uh, that character, Christine, uh, was that what she was going by? And mm-hmm. um, uh, she tells him like, well, do you want to grab a cup of coffee with me at the airport? Which is and totally I, realistic after all that. <laughs> he, and I just, and then it went 
ending credits. So I thought, okay, maybe the game isn't over yet. Like this is still part of the game where he thinks it's been over. His brother's paying the bill, but she still is like, and then, cause then it plays that the white rabbit and he's going back down the, yeah. yeah. So I was like, is that his white rabbit? And he still is going to follow her and get looped into another thing. So I, I was, I, at first I was like, it really is over just at that, that line. But I kind of think that was purposeful. Maybe. Great music choice. I love when he goes in the house and flips on the black light and that song's playing. And you're just like, oh, this is mm-hmm. fucking weird, man. I was just thinking how much fun the set decoration, set deck, set decorator and all of that department uh, must have had designing that and putting all that, uh, all of the graffiti. <laughs> yeah. That was in the black light. Yeah. 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 So super fun movie. Um, if you haven't seen the game, I know. I wish I can't believe I'd waited so long to finally see it. When I told my mom I was watching it, she was so excited. She's like, oh my God, the movie. So many twists and turns. Yeah. Great movie. Uh, 75% Rotten Tomatoes, but zero nominations. Uh, so, yeah. Well, go see the game. Mm-hmm. All right. So, next up, maybe the movie. I mean, he definitely got traction with Seven, but the cult falling for this movie just put him on another stratosphere. And of course, that movie is. Fight Club. <laughs> and one thing I think is interesting is starting here, and I didn't realize this I was getting ready for us to do this podcast. I didn't realize starting here, how many adventures movies are based off of books? Mm. I think they're almost all based off books moving forward, except for maybe Mank. And uh, I think that that's so interesting because it's so hard to do. How many times have we seen a movie based off a book? And it's terrible. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. But Fincher, I will tell you, I think the one time in my life where I thought the movie was better than a book is Fight Club. I've read Fight Club. The book is not as good as the movie. Mm-hmm. And to their credit, I, I can never say his name right. Chuck Panalik. He yeah. lives He lives here. Yeah. We're going to knock on his Sorry. door. He's in Portland. <laughs> we'll go knock on his door and ask him. How do you say your name? Um, when he saw the movie, he thought, I sh- should have wrote the book. Like He goes, they oh. made better choices than I did. What, I mean, what, what can we say about Fight Club? I mean... Again, amazing opening credits. Mm-hmm. Running through the body with the nerve endings and everything. Amazing casting choices. I mean, who who was thinking about Helena Bonham Carter mm-hmm. for that 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 part before Fincher? I mean, and she was perfect. Yeah, she fit like even the scenery perfectly, like yes. in it. Yeah, um, I I think about seeing her in that in that old house, and yeah, that there. It's yeah, yeah. she was great. <laughs> And the subtle dry humor, like, and some of that's in the book, but I feel like it was delivered in the movie so much better, especially in the beginning. Edward Norton's going to all the different meeting groups. Um, God, what a great movie. And you know, when the first time I saw it, so I have to say the twist was kind of spoiled for me when I first saw it. Oh, that's kind of a bummer. I don't remember how. I don't remember. I kind of, I think I remember seeing the scene where Edward Norton is beating himself up and thinking I may have put it together. I don't remember, but I knew the twist before. And I, I think I was just so, I didn't know what to think about it the first time I saw it. I think I was just so taken aback because there was nothing like it. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it again and I watched it again and I watched it again. It's, it's, it's amazing. And I was so bummed to hear that it was, I don't know about not well received. It was just, you know, Brad Pitt and Edward Norton are both on record as saying they walked out of the premiere going, 
I really feel like we accomplished what we set out to do and everybody doesn't seem to respond to it. And then it gained this kind of cult traction. I, uh, when I saw it for the first time, I remember thinking it was a really like mean spirited movie and i don't think like i saw it when i was probably too young and couldn't understand all of the all of the themes um but um i i and i don't know if i picked up i think edward norton just he his performance was really really like haunting for me and that was the first time i'd ever known what um oh my gosh when you can't sleep what is that called uh when you are so you're awake like all the time um oh what is that uh, disorder insomnia, insomnia yeah <laughs> i thought i didn't know i didn't know about insomnia i think like before i saw that movie and then it like there was a a name put put to it and then i i think that it was something i obsessed about for a while i was like oh my god wouldn't that be the worst thing to have insomnia <laughs> and have all these crazy things happen to you um but um it's yeah, I, I, that's a shame that it wasn't it, that that Brad Pitt and Edward Norton walked away from it feeling like people weren't getting what they but hey, they got the cult following. So yeah, it's certainly gained so much ground since then. And um, I can't remember. I don't recall. I know that uh, Fincher wanted he reached out to somebody to do the score and they weren't available and then he moved to the Dust Brothers. And I think I don't know what would have fit better. I mean, that Dust Brothers score is so great. On top of he interjects actual songs, I'm wearing a Tom Waits shirt right now as we do this podcast. And he put one of my favorite Tom Waits songs in, um, in the middle of the movie. But uh, um, I, my, it's a perfect movie, in my opinion. It really, I mean, just a perfect movie. What would you change about Fight Club? I mean, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah, I think that they, I think you summed it up perfectly about that quote of them saying like, I think we we achieved what we set out to do. And yeah. it's a very cohesive movie. I think the um the tone is really uh solid throughout and um i it's and i feel that it came out at the right time for a real um if it was trying to make uh a, a point about culture at the time or uh like 90s um as we were shifting from the 90s into the 2000s and kind of um in the 90s, I mean, from my kid perspective growing up in the 90s, it felt like such a prosperous time. And uh, there was so much, um, there was so much hope. And we were on the edge of so like on the cutting edge of so many things like with technology. But there's also a very, um, there's just an equal side in darkness that I think that movie was uh, really trying to highlight as well. Yeah, no, I agree. And um it's funny, you know, it still had that Fincher vibe, mm -hmm. but he showed us he could be a little lighter. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't, it was, it's not a heavy movie. You're laughing throughout the whole thing. I mean, it's, I don't want to say satire, but I mean, it's kind of dark comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Kind no, of. I think so. Yes. The meatloaf character and um, yeah. Bitch tits. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, who hasn't seen Fight Club? If you haven't seen it, what are you doing with your life? Uh, Seventy-nine percent Rotten Tomatoes, nominated for Best Effects. Um, oh, I have it written down. He reached out to Tom York to do the score of Radiohead, one of my Ooh. favorite bands. But Tom York said, "I'm." They just got done touring for OK Computer. He's like, "I'm exhausted," mm. and so he turned to the Dust Brothers. Which I'd be interested to hear what Tom York score. Uh, but I think the the beat heavy and kind of 
more lively. Well, it wasn't all lively, but particularly the opening credits is very fast paced. But I I love Radio Radio is my favorite band. But I I wonder if Tom York would have done something about mm-hmm. Dust Brothers. But yeah, Fight Club. And Johnny Greenwood does a lot of uh, uh, film score work, doesn't he? He works um, almost exclusively with Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Um, very unique sounding mm-hmm. scores, but uh, very good scores. Yeah. So, um, all right. So I think after Fight Club, it was Panic Room. It was Room. a Panic Room. Panic Room. Uh, Chelsea Burnett's number four all-time <laughs> yeah. movie list. So um, I'd love to hear you kind of talk about Panic Room a little bit with how much you enjoy it. I, I would say I I saw it much later on. It was probably the last Fincher film that I I saw in his in his pantheon. And I'm, um, I don't think I took very many notes. Uh, but I'd love to hear you. I'm going to try, yeah. I'm going to try and be to the point about this. I rambled a little bit in my, in my, when I was saying why it's in my top five. But I, I think that the movie develops showcases, I guess is a better word I want to use, relationships in a really um, compelling way. The relationship between Jodie Foster and her daughter, and then the tension of this divorce and dealing with the aftermath of that um, from her wealthy husband who does make an appearance later in the movie. Um, And this, this house that I think they always knew wasn't the right fit for them, but they just, it's, I think Jodie Foster picks the house thinking it might make her daughter happy is, is sort of my interpretation. And like this, this grand house might be the fresh start that we need. And I love what a character the house is in and of itself with this panic room that even from the very beginning makes Jodie Foster uncomfortable and nervous. I remember when the realtor is talking about it and you see her bristle a little bit while, while, Listen, talking talking about the panic room, and then the the robbers uh, that that break in. Um, I I like how Forrest Whitaker and Jared Leto play off each other, and um, Jared Leto. I, I I don't know. A lot of people seem to be over him at this point, kind of irritated with him. But I I I don't think he was quite as um, hated at the time when this movie came out but uh he sure was playing into that that side of of himself that it seems like rubs a lot of people the wrong way and it worked out really well i think (laughs) with his cornrows and um it's i and then as the movie goes on i just i love the the scenarios that the story puts them in so that we can have these these moments between like Forrest Whitaker and Kristen Stewart and Jodie Foster and um, these very quick um, split decisions they have to make um, what where the stakes are so high and um, uh, there and the way people communicate even just with body language and eyes I think is I just I think it's such a good like in and out story um, and the fact that it takes a just takes place really over the course of one night um the uh there's some i had never seen camera work like this before when it goes through the house and like through vents and um that really stood out for me i think that's one of those moments of like oh this is something movies can do um 
So, uh, I really yeah. like the effects of the house. I love when the neighbor's knocking on the wall and it zooms in a little bit of drywall mm-hmm. that just crumbles away. Oh, yeah. I think it's, it's, so I'll be f- totally honest. I think in terms of my Fincher rankings, Panic Room, it's near the bottom, I'd say. I mean, you know, certainly mm-hmm. around Alien 3 and, um, but, uh, I don't know who else would have made that movie interesting. I mean, it's, you know, such a, small concept and i was curious to see how i would stretch it out mm-hmm. into a whole movie but i think all the acting performances are really good you know honestly maybe the best acting performance by christian stewart and she's you know a preteen. Mm-hmm. uh it's great force whitaker is amazing and dwight yoakam you know he country star he was in sling blade in the 90s really good in sling blade and then plays this really spooky dastardly yeah. person um but uh it's certainly entertaining. That's that's for sure. It's. Certainly... I think it's really funny at times too. I um I yeah when they're arguing with each other, it's. Yeah, I um I, I respect your plate your where you have it placed on your list of David Fincher films. I just um I'll just always be rooting for it. I think it's um I I just it it for me i must have just seen it at the right age where it just really clicked for me and it just always will be that movie i want to put on when the leaves turn and it's it's autumn again and just get me in those spooky autumn feelings so i also was really obsessed and scared of home invasion as a kid <laughs> so i think um that was probably another element why like i really latched onto that that story but um but that's so cool. I never thought about the fact that it was how you put it, that the story itself doesn't have a lot of meat to it and that David Fincher was probably the best the best person to – I think because of him and because of the actors that are in that movie, we can pick up on so much more of the backstory of what's really happening for all of these characters that isn't necessarily written into the script, um, but just based on how they respond to certain sure. things throughout it. Yeah. So, yeah. Solid movie. Definitely entertaining. 75% Rotten Tomatoes. No nominations. So, um, uh, yeah, just definitely worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so after that, he follows up with, um, what I would say is objectively possibly his best film. Um, it's your number two on your all time list and it is the epic film Zodiac. A masterpiece. I said it's almost a masterpiece in our last episode, but I'm going to say it's a masterpiece. <laughs> it might be Fincher's masterpiece. I, and I say, I mean, would I rather seven's my second favorite film, love fight club, you know? Would I rather rewatch those movies? Yes. Do I have to say Zodiac is maybe his best movie? Yes, I have to say that. It's it may be his best movie. Um, it's so fleshed out. It's so well done. It's so well paced for such an intricate story. It's so well casted. Um, like where he interjects certain scenes. And then the attention to detail, he went a little overboard. I did hear that the scene with the couple that gets stabbed out in the park. Yes. You know, obviously that was a real event. Um, apparently, it, word I what I what I've heard, and I don't know how true this is, but those oak trees are all gone, and they could have implemented the CGI. And Fincher was like, "No, no, no! I need you to fly me out some actual oak trees." Oh, there's footage to- on my Blu-ray of Zodiac. They have a featurette, and it shows them helicoptering in those those trees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm a little disappointed. I tried to rewatch 
most of the Fincher films for this for this episode, uh, other than the ones I've seen a million times, like Seven Fight Club, and I'd recently watched Social Network, but um, I didn't get a chance to watch Zodiac, but I, I just saw it like a year ago or so, so still pretty fresh in my mind, but um, um, but yeah, it's your number two all time, please. I guess, yeah, I feel like I need to back up why I think it's a masterpiece. I, th- um, I would just say it's it transports you you're there in the in the time uh the those the late 60s into i think it ends in the 80s um very little time spent in the 80s but um i it the everyone was running on all systems go like full cylinder whatever all gas it's just everything is like magic like every department head he had production designer um to the to the score to the acting to um I, the editing um i just it's very cohesive and um i he had david fincher at the the head of all of it I think did exactly what a director is supposed to do mm-hmm. and brought his vision to life. And, um, I, I think he, um, just, it, it's a huge story. I mean, that case is, is very involved and, um, I've read the Robert Graysmith books and, um, there is, a, I'm in, amazed at the detail that he goes into. And a lot of that David Fincher very like seamlessly brought to the screen without overwhelming the audience. I think mm-hmm. you can still follow the story, uh, pretty, uh, uh, the linearly. book is, is nonfiction, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, so the he... Jake Gyllenhaal character, yeah. Robert Graysmith went and wrote a book, which I think they show the book on like a newsstand in, um, in the airport when they're interviewing one of the victims, um, at an airport in the, in the eighties. But, um, uh, it's, yeah. Yeah. I, and I also think he wrote, um, it, it was kind of a, a, a fine line of like, do you want to come out there and say that Arthur Lee Allen really is the Zodiac or do you want to leave the audience up to, uh, their own interpretation of it? Maybe it could have been this, spooky character that Jake Gyllenhaal goes and meets and goes into his basement to look at old movie posters and um there which uh you know you want to pull your hair out with all the different um suspects there were um and I think he was smart to highlight a few of those um and um and also kind of leave uh leave it up to the audience's um interpretation i mean it leans pretty heavily into it being arthur lee allen but um and understandably so it's just so oh i just love that moment when jake gyllenhaal is having to explain to mark ruffalo how he's figured out how close arthur lee allen lived to one of the victims and he's like mapping it out on a diner on a table in a diner and like using like a salt and pepper shaker to like show on a map how close they were and it's very um it's just Jake Gyllenhaal, and also another actor who I don't think always gets enough credit is as so so good in that. I just love love that movie. I love all the music choices too to to set the scene. Really cool. David Fincher's so good at picking music. Yeah, yeah. Had an actual soundtrack for that one as opposed to a score, which I think you had to do. But um, I'll be interested to hear you tell me. You know, one thing I like about the movie, and you can tell me if the book kind of feels this way, but. I don't feel like the movie is so much about the Zodiac killer 
as using that as a vehicle to tell the story about these people and that it's really about knowing your limits and not being obsessive and stuff. Like I love when Jake Gyllenhaal just won't let it go. And Mark Ruffalo is finally like, Hey, I'm a cop. You're not, this is not your job. And I'm saying it's time to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Robert Downey Jr. Knowing his limits halfway through the movie and saying, I'm done, man. You know, I don't know if that theme is in the book or not. Or is that a testament to Fincher being like, oh, I'm going to shape the movie this way? I think Fincher made the decision to shape the movie and he may have seen a little bit of himself in the Robert Graysmith character in terms of how obsessive you can be. And it kind of makes sense why he wanted to, um, why the, I mean, he didn't, Fincher didn't write the the screenplay, but I, I get why um, he was attracted to it and why he wanted to shape the story maybe a little bit more about Robert uh, Grace Smith's journey through it because he is the author of the book, which uh, is a very, very important and very interesting, interesting work of investigative uh, writing. So, yeah. Um, well, Zodiac is it's a triumph and uh, should be watched by all. Eighty nine percent Rotten Tomatoes, zero nominations, which is an absolute fucking travesty. <laughs> I know. Like. Like, I, it's such bullshit, uh, I, you know, but. And it's so do? fun to see Robert Downey Jr. in that role, not playing Iron Man, I, I will say, because I feel like that's all I've really seen him in in the last decade. So <laughs> when you go back and rewatch that movie and I, he may have just filmed the Iron Man, first Iron Man film when he was working on that, I, I think. But um, yeah, uh, it really goes to show uh, his range, too, before yeah. he kind of started doing well, I'm so excited for this next one. I've watched it, this movie for the first time since 2009. And I got to say, I think this is the movie I have the most to talk about, which I was not expecting to do. Uh, after Zodiac, a few years go by, and David Fincher makes The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I think there are... This movie is not... I've certainly not beloved. And... I think that people tend to put it towards the bottom of his list and view it as flawed. I saw it, I mean, movie came out in 2008 and I know I rented it from Blockbuster. So I probably saw it in 2009. I remember there being scenes that I really appreciated about it. But of course, the primary story based off of F. Scott Fitzgerald short story, but a lot of liberties were taken with the script. You know, the theme is so, the main part is so, absurd you know it's so it's so silly that i was like i get why people don't like but then i watched it again this week and chelsea it's really fucking good like it's so much better than i remember and i think there's a lot of reasons for that so the movie got passed around a lot like they were trying to make a movie about this benjamin button going back to the early 80s a lot of directors were attached with frank oz and spielberg were i think even ron howard at one point they were trying to uh get to direct it the script got passed around a lot and what i think really helped was and i'm gonna i want to make sure i say their names so the final script that was used in the movie was written by eric roth and but prior to that there was a version um written by um eric roth basically um re rewrote and adjusted um the the script written by Robin Swickcord. I don't probably not saying her last name right, but I think the fact that there was 
the, the script was written from a women's per, woman's perspective and then also by a man gave it more depth. Mm. Um, so I think you do have to look past the, <laughs> the, the, what the movie is at the beginning and the end, this little old man boy to steal a line from the office. And then this teenager with dementia. But if you get through that and you just realize that his aging backwards, again, much like Zoe is used as a vehicle to show these human interactions, these connections he makes that he would not have made if it weren't for this ridiculous ailment that he has. Um, now I will say there's a personal thing there because most of the movie is set in New Orleans and it bounces back and forth from early 1900s to why well, I say present day in the present day part of the movie. It's when hurricane Katrina is coming in, which is also something I, I went through. Um, they, they say my hometown, which is insane to me that Bossier city, Louisiana <laughs> was sent a major motion picture. Uh, but that tie into Louisiana, Louisiana was, uh, is so much fun for me. And, um, but watching these relations, his relationship with his, his mother played by, um, of course, um, uh, wonderful actress, um, uh, Taraji B. Henson. Yeah. That's she, right. she, who was nominated for her role. Um, but as he goes on, I think one of my favorite parts of the movie is the scene where he meets up late at night with Til Tilda Swinton and, um, watching the changes Kate Blanchett's character goes through. The movie's very touching. It's very touching. And, um, stylistically I think it's really cool because it's still got the low light Fincher stuff in it but um, you know if he was going to do a romantic movie of course this was it right of course it was this odd one um, so I don't know when was the last time you've seen this it I that was one I unfortunately wasn't able to get to rewatch this week so I haven't seen it since it was in the theaters but I'm things that you're saying are coming back to me and I, I'm remembering a moment with Kate Blanchett dancing is that correct she's a ballerina she, yeah. yes and she has an accident and can't dance anymore yeah and um so that uh she was shot I feel very very lovingly from what I remember in the movie and um I everything you're saying though with it you're really making me want to go back and watch this because I think it was something that I may have just written off because I thought it the concept was so strange and seeing the little old baby man um it that makes it kind of memeable and and silly but it's not a silly movie and it is telling um of it's it's telling a, a very beautiful like love story yeah yeah it's a love story but again you know, the love story, I think, is a big part of it. But like like I said, the connections he makes with all these these people in his life um, and comes back to them. Um, and also how his ailment made his father abandon him, but also made him abandon fatherhood uh, as he leaves when Kate Blanchett becomes pregnant. But uh, um, I I was shocked at, at how much I, I really enjoyed it. And when the movie ended, I was just, I was really touched. And it's the one Fincher movie where, it's not heavy. It was light and it was sweet and he, he can do it. He showed that he <laughs> yeah. can do it. Um, also, by the way, forgot all about this. A very young Mahershala Ali, oh. which made me go, well, now I really want Mahershala Ali to work with David Fincher again. Yeah. But, um, um, you know, Benjamin Button, I, I got to say, I really recommend it. 71% uh, Rotten Tomatoes, but... A lot of Oscar nominations. I remember that Oscars year that it was up for quite a, quite a few. It won for art direction, makeup, and visual effects. Was nominated for best picture. Brad Pitt was nominated. 
Taraji P. Henson was was nominated. Fincher was nominated. Uh, the two writers were nominated for best screenplay, cinematography, film editing, costume design, wow. music. Uh, score was quite good, and sound mixing. So it sounds like they really wanted to award David Fincher, but he'd always made such kind of uh, gritty and uh, yeah. dark material, which doesn't usually play at the Oscars. So I think they were like, oh, he's made like this lighter film. Like now we're going to just shower this his movie with awards uh, or nominations. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, so after after that, we come to what could also be called his objectively his best film. The Social Network. Oh, yeah. Oh, good movie. Mm -hmm. um, really great Tight movie. movie. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, you know, it's still pretty... Well, it's, it's kind of interesting to look back on it now with everything that's happened with Facebook. And maybe he, you, everybody thought, is he being a little hard on, on Zuckerberg? And now it's like, ooh, maybe he wasn't being hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, he gave him too much humanity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, made him seem more like more of a complex Steve Jobs type figure, which now we're wondering, no, he's more of a villain than that, I think. But what a great leap for, for Fincher to to do uh, this real story, uh, which he did with Zodiac, but there's nothing gritty about Social Network. Mm -hmm. um, and to make the right choices of creating the girlfriend conflict with Rooney Mara, which didn't really happen, but what a way to, to make the, the movie move. Mm -hmm. it, that was smart. And um, I it's it is funny when you say the story is not gritty, but they he and Aaron Sorkin were able to pull the um, the grittiness of just like ugliness of people and greed and um, uh, this this uh, hunt for success and doing it at all costs and stepping on people and and not caring and um, making it play like a thriller was um, was really uh, so well crafted. Yeah. And it's also I, I watched the movie over the summer. I had seen it before, but um, I picked up a lot on um, those like um, those tracking shots that um, I hope I'm using the terminology correctly. But like I noticed I noticed it in the game as well that like the camera will move, like will follow an action. Like as a scene will start, a character will kind of, as they move across the, the, the scene, the camera moves in a very like flu fluid motion and um, on this, on this track. And it's not as if it's like still moving along with the feet, but it just like goes from one side of the screen to the next. And it's, uh, and it's usually at a like slightly lower angle. Um, and I don't know, it gives like this really cool voyeuristic like element and it like immediately gets me like hooked. And I remember when Mark Zuckerberg or uh, Jesse Eisenberg is walking out of his dorm room and his like little stupid slides or flip-flops or whatever he's wearing all the time and it like follows him as he's walking out of that building into the next and I was just like I I thought it was just so compelling I was I was all with it I really love that camera move and I feel like it's in a lot of I noticed it in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and yeah, yeah. I'm actually really glad you brought that up because I meant to bring that up with with the game um and you're right you brought, brought up the game but uh I agree. It adds so much. And I'm one that really stuck out to me in the game. And it, you know, it plays to what you're talking about. Social network is when uh, Michael Douglas is sitting on the couch and his wife, ex-wife calls him and the way the camera just kind of pans around him slowly. Yeah. It adds, it adds that sinisterness mm -hmm. to, to the story. 
it's like the camera's a character. Yeah. I mean, it's really great. Uh, and you're right, Social Network, same thing. It adds this uneasy feeling about Zuckerberg, the way the camera moves around him. But um, we don't need to spend too much time in this movie. I think everybody's seen it. Everybody loves it. We know the story, well-casted. And then, of course, we have to talk about the reconnection with Trent Reznor winning the Oscar for that unbelievable score. And, of course, with Atticus Ross. I don't want to take anything away from Atticus Ross. I think Reznor's a genius, but he works with Atticus Ross. And um, one of the many... One of the many uh, Oscar nominations. It won, of course, Sorkin won for Best Writing. It won for Best Film Editing. And the score won. Uh, it was nominated for uh, Picture of the Year, which it should have won. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg, actor, Fincher for directing, cinematography, sound mixing. 96% of Rotten Tomatoes. Probably the best film of 2010. Probably the last film, best film of that five-year span. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you've seen it. If you haven't, go watch Social Network. <laughs> So interesting enough, he follows up with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Now, right off the bat, oh my God, <laughs> those opening credits. Oh my God! I know it's so good. Karen O, right? And Trent yeah. Reznor. I I I will just pull those opening credits up on YouTube sometimes. The immigrant song, right? Yeah. Is what they're covering. Yeah. So awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, those open. I mean, the imagery and with that song playing is just so gross and evil, and you're just like, yes. Uh huh. That being said, I have a lot of problems with this movie, <laughs> and those problems stem from I've read the book, I've read the Millennium Trilogy. Those books are amazing. And I just think that, you know, there's, there's a, there's Swedish movies, versions of the book. Yes. I've seen, I've seen them. Yeah. They're quite good. And I was so pumped, so fucking pumped when I heard Fincher was doing this movie. It's right up his alley. He sat down with producers and writers and said they really, he really wanted to dive into the dark elements of this book. He's so fascinated with the dark elements of this book. And I really, this sounds sound bad. I think he did the best he could. But first of all, the pacing, it's, the movie moves so fast. It's just moving. So you can't even like. Yeah. It just moves way too fast. You can't really understand the relationship that um, Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig end up forming. Like you're supposed to be so, you're supposed to already, I guess I, I knew that they do have a uh, connection because I, I have not read the books, but I've seen the Swedish films. And I, so I saw it there and I just felt like it just progressed way too quickly for, for uh, me to believe their relationship and their connection. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I. I remember being a little thinking it was good, but being a little disappointed with it the first time. And then I rewatched it this week and remembered why. It's just pacing's off. Uh, I'm fine with most of the changes he made, but he really changes the ending up quite a bit. And I didn't think it was necessary, especially how long the movie is. If you're going to make the movie this long, just do the ending the right way. But um, the one thing I will say, casting, A plus mm -hmm. casting choices, just perfect casting choices exactly how i was picturing people when i read the book um love christopher Plummer, r.i.p one of my all-time favorites daniel craig was perfect rooney mara was perfect uh alexander scar is it guard uh, yes yeah at maybe the most perfect choice casting choice in the movie after daniel craig uh robin wright perfect casting choice 
Um, it's not a bad movie. Um, it's an entertaining movie. I totally watch it. I, totally watchable. Yeah. Um, just a letdown if you read the, a bit of a, a little bit of a letdown if you've read the book. Does it come across you like he got rushed while making that film? Like he had to quickly tie like wrap up production or ran out of money or something. It just I, because it it feels like it's lacking. Yeah, that polish that I'm I'm used to on a lot of Fincher's films, and so I'm just like, what happened here? Why didn't it quite come together? Exactly how we would think it should have, because it seems like it was the perfect mix. Um, but uh. I think there's a lot of content in the book. And I, and I think that there's, there's just, there's not enough stuff you can cut out. So he's trying to fit as much as he can into the movie. I mean, the movie's like 240, Mm -hmm. two hours, 40 minutes, and it still moves that fast. Maybe he should have just pumped it to three hours. I I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I will say that being said, I'm disappointed he, he didn't get to make the other two in the trilogy yeah. and then they completely rebooted the franchise with the fourth book, which was not written by the original author and recast and it was poorly reviewed. And, uh, I, I will not be watching it probably. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's my thoughts on girl <laughs> dragon tattoo. Um, I think I have the, uh, 81% or 87%, excuse me, 87% Rotten tomatoes, five nominations. It won for M editing. Uh, Rooney Mara was nominated. I remember she, uh, that was the first time she's on my radar. Yeah, uh, I think she's a better actor than her sister personally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, cinematography, sound mixing, sound editing. Um, that was what well, I got nominated for. So, uh, moving along here, another another book turned into a film. Rewatched it for the first time in quite a, in probably five six years. Uh, but last night, uh, that movie is Gone Girl. When I think of my wife, I always think of her head. I picture cracking her lovely skull, unspooling her brains, trying to get answers. Goddamn, what a good movie. I know, I know. I love that he wanted to make this movie. I think, I, I, did you read the book? I didn't read the book. Um, I was just talking to someone about how uh, the 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 movie takes a slightly different approach to the ending than the book does, and I'm I'm not mad at either. I'm not mad at it. I like when someone brings something new uh, to a film that that surprises someone that's familiar with the book. So, so I, I I've heard that it is slightly different, but I've never had it explained to me. What's you can do it briefly, but what's the main difference? I think. Oh gosh, and. Please don't quote me, but because it's been so long since I finished the book. But I think one of the big things is how the uh, the Neil Patrick Harris character is killed in the movie. I did read that was different. Um, and also I would just say the maybe even just over the course of the film versus the book, the way that uh, the amazing Amy, the character Amy, is her motivations come across a little differently in the book than they do in the movie. The The movie, I think, plays her off as like a straight up sociopath where I, the book is um, maybe a little kinder to her in, in that respect. I, I don't, she still does all of the, 
evil and vindictive and terrible things. But um, I think in the movie, it's just a little easier to root for like this person is pure evil and this person is kind of like a, oh, he messed up. But like the I'm talking about the Ben uh, mm. the uh, Ben Affleck character, but he, there's still something uh, that's uh, endearing about him. Um, so I feel like the movie took a, a stance of saying I think we're gonna try and show that the Ben Affleck character is the the one you obviously want to root for, whereas in the book it was a little more mixed um, between who who you really are caring for the most between the two characters that's interesting um you know one thing i'll say the pacing in this movie was much better and i think part of that was because you know jillian flynn who wrote the book wrote the screenplay Mm -hmm. and and so let her pick and choose what to change right and i think that that helped a lot i think the pacing is really good i think the moving the way they move back and forth uh past present you know the with a made-up past i should say uh is 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 really good um I thought Reznor's score is fantastic. I think it's just as good as Social Network or close. And I'm surprised it wasn't nominated, but um, it's it's a good movie. And another thing I wanted to say, uh, this may come to a big shock to you. I'm not particularly into the Tyler Perry movies. Uh, he's so good. I know. He's so it would have been movie. nice to see him. He didn't get nominated for that, did he? No, he didn't. I would have loved to have seen him nominated as a Best Supporting Actor. I'm not sure how stacked the category was that year, but um, it was so, so nice to see him in a role like that. And I, because I, when I, that movie came out, I had only really known him in the Medea movies, so. Yeah, he he's, he's fantastic. Shockingly good. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is I love that there's like funny moments. Yeah. Like there's so many uncomfortable chuckles in this completely fucked up dark movie. Yeah. Um, it's really good. I, I remember, but I will say this. I remember when I saw it the first time just being like, I feel so gross when the movie ends. And I watched it last night for the first time ever. And I felt so gross. Like you just sit there as the credits are rolling. Pisses you off sort of. Yeah. The, you sit there as the credits roll and that, that Reznor slow, tinky music that's playing over the credits. You just like, I need to go for a walk or something. I feel disgusting, but that's just Fincher. That's just you know, that's that's the beauty of his movie making. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel something, even yeah. if it's uncomfortable. Eighty-seven uh, percent of Rotten Tomatoes, which I would say is too low. I think it should be in the nineties. Yeah. Only Oscar nomination: Rosamund Pike for Best Actress. I really want to argue that she should have won a uh, Julianne Moore one for still Alice, which I have not seen, but Julianne Moore is an all time great actress and yeah. that's her only Oscar win. I don't want to take it from her, but Rosamund Pike is absolutely incredible. A mm-hmm. gone girl. Um, uh, well that brings us to his current one. Mank. Mank. I've seen it. You've seen it. I don't want to dive in too much to it just because it's still so new and Oscars are coming. People may listen to it, but, um, Perfectly fine movie. It's not near the top. I know it's a movie he wanted to make for a long time. His father wrote it in the early 90s and um, cached his relationship with Netflix into into having this movie made. I know he's really proud of it. I think it's a very well-made movie. Uh, I think it's an important movie to talk about in terms of old Hollywood and the history of Hollywood, especially with Susan Cain being so, so important. Um, I know they took some liberties. I don't think there's that much argument about who wrote Citizen Kane. I think Mankiewicz and and um, 
uh, Wells. Wells. God, I couldn't think of his name. <laughs> I think it's widely believed they they wrote it together. I mean, Orson Welles was obsessed with the subject matter. So um, Gary Oldman's fantastic. Man of Seafreed's fantastic. Um, and I know that um, the score, Trent Reznor's nominated for the score, which I thought was just okay. It was to be, I don't know if it's just my watching it on my TV at home, but I had a hard time hearing the movie. At, and I know that they were playing with, um, they wanted to do the sound in the style of mm-hmm. uh, of film that would have come out in the 30s mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. 40s, which I give major props to. I think it's really interesting, but I couldn't really hear the dialogue. So I had to watch it with subtitles. And then sometimes the score was a bit distracting for me. Um, it just the le- maybe the levels were a little off for me and on my sound bar. I don't know, but yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that that's just what I thought about. I, I think there was like a scene where Mank goes to talk to um, Marion Davies. Is that Amanda Seyfried who I think she's playing? Um, and he's trying to get her to convince um uh, Hearst to tell uh, Louis B. Mayer to stop running that um, that campaign, the campaign against um, what's his name, whatever that politician was. I didn't want to win. Yeah. Um, and he seemed really conflicted and kind of scared about it. And then, but the music was sort of like beboppy, like do do do. And it, I mean, it made me rewind the scene because I was like, maybe this is supposed to be funnier than I thought it was. And and, and I'm glad I rewound. And I do think the music was the right choice because it ends with him just kind of laughing at like, oh, everything is out of my control and this is so fucked. <laughs> but um, I. Uh, yeah, I that was a little bit of a runoff there, but um, no, but yeah, the, the, sound, the, the sound decisions in that movie were uh, it was a choice, it didn't always work for me, and it took me a little while to warm up to them. But yeah, always glad to see Fincher get recognition, but I, you know, don't know if this is uh, the best, uh, this is not going to be his year, I don't think. Uh, uh, 83% Rotten Tomatoes got 10 nominations, picture of the year, lead actor, director. Uh, supporting actress, uh, Amanda Seyfried, uh, sound, production design, score, makeup and hair, which I think it could win, costume, which I think it could win, cinematography, mm-hmm. which is a chance, but I don't think it's going to be like Nomadland. Um, I, yeah, I don't know it's going to win too much. I may not win anything, but, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, so that that is his pantheon of movies. I do want to say he has a movie, upcoming movie called The Killer. It's in pre-production. There's, like no information on it so i i uh I, I don't i don't know i don't think it's even been cast yet uh he's also working on producing a tv prequel to chinatown which i'm really kind Is of excited for netflix <laughs> probably yeah. probably but i'm i love chinatown so i kind of can't wait to see what he does with that um just interesting too i want to talk about some of the movies or just touch on some of the movies he he dropped out of directing mm-hmm. he was assigned to do the black dahlia dropped out uh, which is probably good i don't he probably would have made that movie better so but, weird but, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, the Madonna documentary, Truth or Dare, uh, Mission Impossible Three, which I'd be curious to see, especially with uh, that's when Philip Seymour Hoffman is the villain. But yes, I don't know about Fincher doing action. I want to see. Maybe I'm I'm curious. He kind of touched on action, I guess, with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo a little bit, but yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit. Uh, he dropped out of Catch Me If You Can to do Panic Room instead, which I think that was the best choice for. Totally. I think it was good for Spielberg to do that. And yeah, yeah. Uh, he was asked to do eight millimeter and he just declined to do fight club instead. Thank God. Although he would have made eight millimeter. I mean, I think it would just been 
seven, but not as good. Mm-hmm. Um, and was originally attached to do Batman Begins, which I'm now salivating at the thought of David Fincher doing Batman Begins. But, uh, but yeah, so. I was reading too that um, he, this has not been made into a movie, um, but there's a book about Columbine. It's called Columbine and uh, it's, it's probably my second favorite true crime uh, book after Zodiac. Um, And it's, oh, it is an epic piece of writing and it's very uh it's emotional and it's difficult and it it just learning about the columbine story and this this writer uh he really ingratiated himself into the the community there uh in order to get like the the most like the truest stories for this this book but uh i i was reading that they were get trying to get fincher to make that into a film but it ended up being scrapped because they, they just thought the subject matter was too challenging and i mean yeah um uh, i'm forgetting the filmmaker's name right now but uh there's a movie called elephant i'm not sure if you've ever seen I've, it i've never but, seen it but i know about it yeah. uh that that i've seen it i don't know if i would recommend that movie but it's also about a school shooting and i think it draws heavily on the columbine story and it's uh it was really really challenging so i, I could see that being I see why David Fincher stepped away from it, but I also, when I saw that the light bulb went off, I was like, oh, he is a great choice uh, to tell that story. Um, I also think maybe um, uh, Catherine Bigelow could do something really cool with that story too. But um, but yeah, that's for, oh, we can talk about that. We can talk about Catherine Bigelow some other time. (laughs) Oh, for sure. We probably will. But uh, yep, Fincher, we love you. I can't wait to see what you do next. You know, we didn't even touch on his work with Netflix with, Early House of Cards and Mindhunter. Just I love Mindhunter. He's the man. Love, love Fincher. Uh, all right. Well, let's wrap it up with our recommendations. Uh, I can go first this mm-hmm. this time. Um, I recently watched a movie called Breathless, 1960s French film. 1960. It was like the beginning of the French New Wave film. Uh, it was remade in the 80s with Richard Gere, and uh, I've never seen it, but I heard it's an abomination. Just really bad movie. Um <laughs> But it's about uh, this young guy in Paris, and he's a criminal, gets in a lot of trouble, has this uh, American girlfriend, um, and it's so interesting to watch it come out in 1960, and as I said, beginning of the French New Wave, and to see the movies that they were making in France as opposed to America, like having these deep, deep, long discussions, laying in bed, talking about sex and attraction and stuff like that, and it's just not something you would see in American film. Mm-hmm. It, it was... You know, they'd be moving on to the next scene. They would not be talking that intimately about sex um, and more complicated matters and stuff. But uh, uh, I enjoyed it. A really cool music. Um, you know, it's it's something very charming about the characters. Um, so I, if you if you really enjoy film, I say three. It's like a must watch. Need to watch it. It's on HBO right now. Um, but if you're not into the foreign language stuff, you know. You can you can take a back seat, but uh, but yeah, breathless. Thank you. That's a good recommendation. Um, my uh, my recommendation is a movie called Walking and Talking. Came out in the '90s, and it's a little indie film starring Katherine Keener and Anne Heche and Liev Schreiber, and um, uh, the the director Nicole Holof Center Senior. Uh, it, it's her first film. And she, I actually have not seen any of her other films, but her name's always 
floated around and I've been interested to see um, her other movies. It looks like she works with Katherine Keener a lot and I like Katherine Keener. I think she's such like a naturalistic type of actor. I first I, I didn't know her until I saw the 40 year old virgin and I think she's so lovely in that so funny. And um, it's just uh, walking and talking is about um, these Anne Haitian and Catherine Keener who are best friends from childhood and they've been living as roommates in New York and Anne Haish ends up moving in with her um, fiance and it's Catherine Keener's kind of dealing with feel, that feeling of abandonment and things changing and um, she has Lee Schreiber who's on the side who was her um, ex-boyfriend um, who they're still friends and trying to work it out. It's it's really just a small little story, but it was kind of the perfect little thing to just put on in the afternoon and just makes – it's uh, just about people and little relationships. It's pretty funny. Um, and uh, I, I thought it, it made me think too. It made me think about my friendships and um, I – I just I give it a two. I I think it's something if uh, you you can find it on HBO Max. If you just want to put it on, keep it in like it'll only take like an hour and a half of your day, and I think you'll end up walking away being like, well, that was just delightful. Um, so that's my recommendation: walking and talking. Awesome. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for everyone who listened to this. And. Uh, We'll be back with another episode. Um, not sure what we're going to subject will be. I've got some ideas, but uh, we'll have that out soon enough. So thank you so much. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, Spencer. And we'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you for listening. The Marquee Spotlight is recorded in Portland, Oregon. Music composed and produced by Josh Colopy. And cover art created by Taylor Engler. Check us out on Twitter for updates regarding new episodes and listen to episodes anywhere podcasts are found.